20 years old, I found out I was pregnant. Those two pink lines devastated me. I knew I could survive the adventure of parenthood, but I didn't have a roadmap to help me thrive. Welcome to the Two Pink Lines podcast, a podcast addressing the questions of unplanned pregnancy. I want to share stories of women and men who've embraced the unplanned and found out that they can still hope, dream, and become a parent. Hi, I'm your host, Cheyenne Erickson. Join me as we embrace the unplanned. Hey all, welcome back to Two Pink Line Pod. Today is really special because it's our first resource episode, and we're going to be talking about fears and concerns with labor and delivery and then afterbirth care. Now, the expert that I've brought in is Sue Gotchel. Sue is just so talented and sweet. She's a therapist. She's a lactation consultant. She's a doula. She and her daughter, Rebecca, founded an organization called Chicago Family Picnic that offer amazing classes and many other resources. And so Sue gently walks us through a wealth of information that I'm really excited to share with you. So here is my conversation with Sue. Hi, Sue. Welcome to Two Pink Lines Pod. Hi, Cheyenne. Thanks for calling. Um, So could you just tell me a little bit about your history with helping um, women with pregnancies and how you started Chicago Family Picnic? Sure. Um, I retired from teaching at a city college level in Chicago um, because I wanted to become a doula. And doulas are women who support uh, women and their partners in childbirth. Uh, so when I retired, I did my doula training and began to work at a Chicago hospital um, with both family practice docs and midwives. And it soon became very evident that there were many, many moms who needed a volunteer doula and couldn't afford to pay the costs of a professional doula. And out of that knowledge, um, myself and a group of about eight or nine doulas met over time and gradually um, formed uh, Chicago Volunteer Doulas. That's awesome. Because I've heard a lot about the group, and it's grown a lot. How many, do you know how many are active in the city now? Well, at the time that I left, it was around 100 doulas that were working, um, and we were at five hospitals. And now the the number has, has stabilized, I think, between about 80 and 100. And uh, they are at far more hospitals, I think. I think the number is up to seven hospitals and one birth center now. This is the 10th year anniversary of Chicago Volunteer Doulas. Wow, congratulations. Yeah, yeah it's very exciting. Wow. Um, now, when I first heard about a doula, um, I thought it was like kind of an Eastern natural thing. Could you explain a little bit about why someone might want a doula? Sure. Um, I, I think we should say, first of all, that, that doulas for a long time served wealthy women. And so women of more moderate 
means and middle incomes and certainly low incomes didn't have doulas. Um, they sometimes had midwives, but they didn't have doulas. Um, and the, the role of a doula um, means women helper or women woman slave. Um, I prefer the helper role. Uh, agree to work with a woman um, sometime during their pregnancy. Um, and the reason to hire a doula to look for one um, is so that both the woman and her partner get the support that they're going to need during the birth. And when I say support, it's um, physical support. Um, it might be in the form of massage. It could be in the form of getting in different positions to help the baby uh, get in a good position and to move down um, for when it's going to be born. Um, pain management techniques that employ natural methods. Uh, so that's the physical side of it, making sure the woman stays hydrated and as nourished as she can be and as comfortable as she can be during labor. Uh, then there's an information side of it. So doulas are, uh, get um, training and certification so that they're very knowledgeable about the process of childbirth. Uh, so that as the the mother and her partner are making decisions throughout labor, the doula is there to make sure that they have evidence-based information available mm -hmm. to them, information that is both the reasons to do um, certain procedures that might be suggested and also evidence uh, about some of the effects which might not, um, that might include risk factors for procedures that are being suggested. So that's the physical and the information side of it. Um, I'm a trained therapist, and I really feel the emotional side is the most important of all. Um, most women and men or other partners, female partners as well, um, enter childbirth with um, a lot of fears, a, a fair amount of misinformation, and it's really important um, to be able to address those fears with them, to work with them on ways um, that that they can deal with the fears so they don't um, affect their labor and delivery. Wow, I didn't realize that you were a therapist, too. That's amazing. You have all the tools in the toolbox for this. Um, well, that's probably the tool that helps me the most in anything I do. So, Well, that's good to know for people who want to go into that type of work if they have a therapy background. Um, addressing fears that people have in pregnancy, is there one or two that stick out that you know come up like very regularly? Uh, yeah. Um, one of the fears that comes up all the time is that women are afraid that they are going to um, receive episiotomies at the time that their baby crowns and is waiting to be born. An episiotomy is a cut from the vaginal opening um, in the direction of the rectum. Mm -hmm. um, so the first thing is evidence-based information that episiotomies are only done when absolutely necessary today, and that means that they're seldom done. Um, in over 120 birds, I think I have only witnessed four episiotomies. Okay. 
Um, so that's getting the correct information out that scientists have found that any tearing that occurs, any vaginal tearing that occurs at the time of delivery heals much better from tear than it does from a cut. Mm. And some women are able to deliver with no tearing at all, um, working with their provider. Um, so, so that fear we deal with, with evidence-based information. Um, Men are often worried that they are going to pass out, that they won't be able to handle the, the nitty-gritty of, of fluids and the messiness of birth, which is certainly prevalent. And so we work with those partners uh, for what they are comfortable in doing. And, for example, um, a partner can be at the head of the bed supporting the mother, um, totally helping her with breathing and supporting her through pushing. And he doesn't see the baby until it's lifted up at the same time that the mother does. Oh. Um, so that might be one way we would deal with that. I also work with partners to make sure they know what to do if they feel faint and make it a, 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 a perfectly normal thing that that the lights around birth sometimes um, not being well hydrated or fed yourself can make you feel that way and talk about how you just step back, put your head down. Mm -hmm. um, and then as soon as you're feeling okay, you can move right back in again to the mom. Another, another fear that comes up all the time is uh, that the baby won't be healthy, that there mm -hmm. will be something wrong with their baby, despite all of these tests we have to go through today. And, um, I, I always answer this one with um, a question, which is, well, what would you do if your baby was born with a health issue? And, of course, they, they come up very fast with exactly what they would do. They would seek all the information they could about it. They would stay with their baby. They would look for experts. Uh, they would look for the best care possible. Um, and it's almost as if until you ask that question, people don't realize the reserves that they have for it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember at, we had, for some reason, a um, ultrasound in the third trimester for my daughter, and they told me that she had a medium marker for Down syndrome. And I didn't realize that a medium marker wasn't as big of a deal as I thought. Um, uh -huh. But for the first time, I had that oh, wow, what would we do? And the answer was like, you know, we'll, well, like, what happens? We'll love her. We'll find out how to do this. We'll find experts. And all those things automatically came. But it was a fear that I didn't have until that point. Yes, absolutely. Um, let me just mention one other fear, because I think the how we work with it uh, speaks to many fears. Mm. So say that... Um, a, a woman uh, has gestational diabetes, and her healthcare providers are worried that she is going to have a large baby. Um, so we work with evidence-based information um, in terms of ultrasounds and how they aren't always correct, and how everyone deserves a trial of labor to mm. to see if they can't deliver a baby. Trial uh, of labor, I like that term. <laughs> you go ahead and, and see what your body can do. Mm -hmm. And 
we work with women to think about how your body has taken care of the baby from the very beginning, um, built these incredible protections for the baby from amniotic fluid to a mucus plug to a cervix that only lines up with the birth canal when you go into labor, uh, et cetera. And then we also work with them that if your body knew what to do to take care of this baby for these nine months, um, your body is also going to grow a baby that is the right size for you to deliver. And in, you know, almost the vast majority of cases, this is true. Um, so we try to help the woman move from the fear to the positive affirmation that um, my baby is going to be just the right size for me. Oh, I had never thought about it that way. <laughs> it's kind of fun to change fears into positive affirmations because their flip side is often the side that one can focus on and and use to get through labor and delivery. So if a woman doesn't have a support like you or someone else, is there a way that she could do that in her own mind, like um, to work on her fears? Well, I think it's really helpful to have someone or to have a group to do that. And there are many social service agencies mm -hmm. that um, provide programs for young mothers, often teen mothers today, but that extends usually into the early 20s as well, um, where doulas come in and work with moms along those lines. Um, my youngest daughter... Uh, is now a certified nurse midwife, but she was a, a doula. She's fluent in Spanish, and she worked with um, Dominican teens, getting them ready for childbirth using exactly some of those those methods. Oh, that's really awesome. Um, kind of off of the idea of working with women of color, um, I've actually been doing some research lately on the mortality rate for black women. Um, Which is terrible. Yeah. Terrible in the sense that it is so much poorer than it is for white women. And something I read was that doula support is something that can um, really help black women navigate the health system. Um, have you had personal experience with that as well? Um, well, I've certainly um, worked with black women. Um, I would say that what doulas do, irregardless of the color, but I think it's especially important with for women of color, is to make space for the woman to advocate for herself. A doula doesn't go in and talk to the doctors for you, but they help to create that space so that women can ask questions, get the answers that they need, make decisions, be at the center of the birth, and part of the whole process of the birth, rather than having other people making decisions, um, which sometimes are based on race, even though the provider is not aware that they are. Mm, yeah. But I have a, a really interesting story. Um, I have been the, the doula three times for an African-American woman um, who is very dear to me now and a very close friend, but we met when she was in my childbirth class and um, her first birth lasted um, 60 plus hours. Oh my gosh. 
Yeah. And we worked together both at home and then later in the hospital. And I had to take some hours in the midst, you know, to rest. And she she went through that that birth. But at one point, she had a mother and a sister there who were making her very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I encouraged her to take whatever steps she needed to take to feel safe in her birthing situation. And we did this little conference in the bathroom over it. And she went out and basically told her mother and sister that they had to wait in the waiting room. Mm-hmm. And they did. They they honored her wishes. Um, and it made a tremendous difference in how free she felt to go ahead and labor. So I was the doula for her first birth. For her second birth, um, she had it at home because she felt that the hospital um, was a frightening place to have had her birth. And she had an absolutely wonderful certified professional midwife who was there working with us. And that birth was, you know, 15, 16 hours rather than 60. Wow. And then she had her third birth at home with not as comforting a midwife group. But uh, in Illinois, as you probably know, it's only certified nurse midwives that are legal. And so this birth was done legally. And she called me. And the baby was born and everything was wonderful and fine. And she called me at midnight, two weeks after the birth, to tell me that she had a headache and a neck ache. Mm. And we talked about how it was probably related to nursing and how you do a lot of neck graining trying to get this right. And um, then her phone beeped and she got off from talking to me because... um, she was getting a call back from her midwife. She didn't call me back, so I assumed that the midwife and her were taking care of it, right? And I kept my phone on, and I went to bed, and at 6 a.m. my phone rang, and it was her husband. And he was either in the ambulance or in ER where they had taken her because um, she basically was unconscious in the morning. And she had a cerebral hemorrhage. And here's an African-American woman who had had good prenatal prenatal care with all three births and this still happened to her and it's an interesting story because we I will never ever again if anyone calls me in that situation not go Mm. to actually see or and never make the assumption that because they're talking to someone else even though it's a midwife that it's being taken care of because it wasn't At any rate, we spent two months in the hospital with her um, pumping her breasts, and her husband finger-fed her baby 24-7 with breast milk, both donated and that we pumped. And by the end of two months, she, well, by the end of three, she was fully recovered. Oh, that's so good to hear. the baby was back to nursing fully again. And she's a happy, healthy two-year-old today. Wow. That's yeah. a heart-wrenching story. It really is. And it, it speaks to how, you know, <laughs> you think you've covered the bases, but you never know. Mm. Wow. Um, so in terms of postpartum care then, 
I know that a lot of people struggle with either postpartum depression or other issues that may come up postpartum. Would you, uh, how would you recommend for women to look towards that if they are pregnant and if they're in the midst of dealing with that? Um, what do you have any resources that you could suggest? Um, well, first of all, I think that, um, you should select a provider who says that they are going to see you during the first two or three weeks after your baby is born. It's been standard care in our country that they don't see women till six weeks. ACOG has recommended against this now and said that it should be earlier, but lots of providers haven't made this change. And um, a lot of the, there's, by the way, you can probably look this up last Sunday's paper. Chicago Tribune did a front page family article um, on um, African American women and other women as well, but on the the need for follow up postpartum care. Oh. I'll so link to this, this in the just notes. Physically, first of all, that the preeclampsia could go on, mm-hmm. that you you could have hypertension afterwards. Um, and also to check for for um, postpartum depression, but it is is both physical and emotional that needs to be dealt with. And in other countries, um, for example, in Europe, um, a nurse visits you at home, yeah, several times, and certainly within the first two weeks of your birth. Um, some practices are starting to do this to hire nurses that do this, but in this country, it's still very far. Very, very far away. My daughter and I run a separate organization, Chicago Family Picnic, where um, part of the care that a mother gets from us in addition to childbirth head, and this is since you took it, Cheyenne, Mm. they now do a breastfeeding baby care class, and then we visit them at home, usually as soon as their milk comes in, so Mm. three to five days after they deliver. Mm -hmm. So we do that visit. Um, but it should be more than your doula. It should also be your your healthcare provider. So either your midwife or your OB who sees you during that time. Yeah, because I remember it was more that I was like looking for connection and affirmation on my breastfeeding. And the hospital had a class, but they were like 30 minutes away by train. And so I loaded up my like two week old onto the train and like figured out. And of course, I was like 40 minutes late and there's only 10 minutes left of the class or whatever. And walking in and just looking at the pumps, looking at the nurses and they're like, do you need help? I'm like, yes, but no. And I like literally ran out. I was like, I cannot go in. And so it would have been so comforting to have someone come and be like, hey, and really, like I said, I just needed affirmation, but still affirmation from someone else other than yourself, looking yes. at your husband being like, what, what is this, is this right? Yeah. Now, if you, if you have a doula, your doula should be doing that as well. You know, you can find a program where they do that, but if you're hiring a doula as a birth doula, she should be making that postpartum visit within those first two weeks. Okay. Some other questions that I had when I was um, pregnant, especially like a young pregnant, the first thing that I was told was that I was going to get a birth plan. Could you kind of give me a summary of like what that is? And I don't know, it feels very big and like you have to figure out a lot. But yeah. Well, the first thing I would say is that 
Um, I think to call it a birth plan gives you the erroneous idea that you can plan your birth. And you absolutely cannot. Okay. You can't. <laughs> you, you don't decide when it starts, and you don't decide how long it's going to go on. <laughs> Have you seen the episode? Do you watch Gilmore Girls at all? No, I haven't. Okay, so there's an episode on Gilmore Girls where um, the girl Rory, her stepmom, is pregnant, and she's scheduled a C-section, and she's working up to the point, and the friend calls... Um, Lorelai and Rory and says, Sherry just messed up. She went into labor. How could she mess up? Like, it was the <laughs> idea of like planning her C-section. Yeah. Right. right. So, so what I say to people is call it birth wishes. And that's what you're putting down is things you hope for. But know that one of the most important things in labor is that you're going to need to be flexible because you will make many decisions throughout it with your partner and your healthcare provider um, that may or may not follow those birth wishes. Um, so I think birth wishes are fine, and I think they can cover things like whether you want intermittent monitoring, where they monitor your baby just with a baby stethoscope, a baby Doppler it's called, mm. um, every 20 minutes, or whether... You, you and your provider want continual monitoring where you wear rather uncomfortable belts that measure the contractions in the baby's heart rate. Mm -hmm. By the way, both in research for the last uh, 40 years have shown, actually 50 years have shown that um, reliability is just as good. The results are just as good with a baby Doppler as they are with um, full-time belt monitoring. So you put down... Things like that that you want. If you'd like to not have an IV, but you want to have um, a HEPLOC or you don't want any of that. And once you have your wishes down, then you go to your provider and find out what they're okay with. And, and you have to, again, you know, often adjust those wishes so that you and your provider are within reason on the same page. Mm. As far as providers go, I mean, I know choosing your provider is really hard and like choosing midwife or, you know, OBGYN or often it's determined by insurance and location of where you're at. But is there really a big difference or how do you know what is a quality provider? Well, I think there's a huge difference between most OBs and midwives. Um, midwives have more time to spend with you in your appointments and they are usually more able to discuss things with you um, and to listen and abide by some of those wishes that I just mentioned that might come up for a birth plan. Okay. Um, they Midwives see birth as a very normal thing for women to have and they would like to um, have the woman's birth be as normal a process as possible where they interfere as little as possible. Mm. On the other hand, midwives always have a consulting OB so that if there is an issue um, that comes up during the birth or during the pregnancy, um, the OB team is right there to work with the midwife and the, and the mom about it. I think OBs view birth as a medical event mm. Um that needs the um, oversight and um, 
often intervention of a medical professional. Now, that's not all your OBs. <laughs> it's not all your midwives, mm-hmm. but those are kind of generally um, how each approaches it. Okay. That's a good distinction. And for the woman who might, um, like, I guess kind of back to the um, birth wishes idea, I really like that language. When thinking about, like, I've had friends who've done home deliveries, and quite honestly, I've been like, you're a little crazy, but you even had a story about a home birth. Are they becoming more common, and is that something that maybe people should consider more often? I think home births are absolutely fine if they are done with a qualified provider. Okay. Um, and in well, where I live, it has to be um, a certified nurse midwife. Um, but in many, many states, it's a certified professional midwife who is not a nurse but has had three to four years of training okay. to become a midwife and has passed, passed the exams. Um, so it's very important that they, that they have a provider. It's very dangerous to have your baby alone at home mm. <laughs> with, without health care. Sometimes health care is needed during the birth. Sometimes the mom needs to be transferred to the hospital, and then the procedure is there and is set up to happen. But if you view birth as a normal function of a woman, there's no reason why many, many women shouldn't be able to birth at home. I guess America over-medicalized at some point. Well, we, we moved things into the hospital because... Doctors said, come and I will anesthetize you and you won't feel it. Mm. So in the 1920s, women started going to hospitals um, where they had their babies alone, often with their arms tied down, um, and where they were put out. Oh. I don't remember it. Wow. My, my own mother-in-law had um, twins, and she didn't even know she was having twins that way. Oh, my gosh. Yep. That... I had never heard a story like that. Like I've heard ice chips and tying down, but wow. Well, it's good that that like I feel like we're coming to an age of a little bit more freedom. I hope so. I certainly think so. <laughs> I love home births. They're wonderful. They're relaxed. They're they go at their own pace. There's no feeling that they have to be hurried up, you know, unless there's a real medical reason, but mm. in most cases, it it is a very naturally occurring birth. And I've done more and more home births in the last years that I was a doula because I got very interested in them. That's really cool, and I mean that's a great resource to know about if I ever have children again. Because last yeah. time I had yeah. my son, I labored most of the time at home. We were only in the hospital like before he was born for like two hours from check-in to when he was born. That's ideal. Yeah, <laughs> it was much. My mom left to go get her charger and he came and it was great. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's ideal. I mean, the longer a woman can labor at home where she's most comfortable, the more likely her labor is going to move along quickly when she gets to the hospital. Well, something that I kind of had to talk Matt into was doing birth classes, actually yours, um, because we did yours and then we did the basic, like, how to care for an infant at the hospital, which was amazing and free. Um... Tell me where you did mine. Was it at Chicago Family Picnic or my house? 
Um, Chicago Family Picnic. On, okay. Yeah. Because okay. I used to teach out of my house, and I can't remember how long. Okay. Yeah. Good. So, I mean, you obviously teach birthing classes. So would you suggest everyone should have a birthing class? Or if someone's like, oh, that sounds weird. We're all going to, like, sit on balls together. Um, what would you say to that person? Yes, I would say that everyone should take a birthing class because why enter into something where you don't understand what's happening and where you feel helpless. And what we do is provide you with the tools that you're going to need um, and beliefs and attitudes, hopefully, um, that will get you through the, the labor. And to go into it where you don't know anything, then really the only solution to it is to be anesthetized, even mm-hmm. if it's an epidural, right? Is to, is to try to have what's a normal process basically handled through pain meds. Mm-hmm. And I am not opposed to pain meds for birth, but I think you need to know um, both the positive and, and negative um, values of every single choice that you make in, in birth. And then you'll be making constructive decisions. And I want people educated enough to make those. Yeah, for sure. Um, As far as, like, I guess for the labor process, but do you also teach um, birthing classes? Or I guess they wouldn't be birthing classes, but what to do when you have a baby type class? Yeah, we do a a five-week childbirth class. And it is followed by a three-hour workshop on breastfeeding and baby care. And then we follow that up with a, which we weren't doing when when you were here, Cheyenne, um, but we followed up with really uh, what we call our postpartum workshop, where we bring the people back um, from uh, our birthing class to do a postpartum class. So, Mm. So what's happening now that you've got your baby, questions and discussion about birth stories um, that we do with partners and babies <laughs> all together. And then we do mom and baby groups and dad and baby groups so that there's support for the whole family from the time of birth on. And some of this has been added on since you were there. Yeah, that all sounds amazing. If you guys are in the Chicago area, you need to look up Chicago Family Picnic. Um, obviously, Sue's amazing and sweet. But, like, I went there for a yoga with baby class, and they have other fun things that just, it really does feel like a community. And I don't know if you're in the same building, but I'm sure you had the same atmosphere, that it felt like kind of a little lodge that was just there to care for you and your child. Good. <laughs> we we are still in the same place. Okay, Yeah. We're, we're downstairs. I think you were upstairs, and we have we've doubled our space, so we're downstairs now. Congratulations! We'll yeah. put um, yeah. the link to your website in the show notes. So if anyone wants to look you guys up, because she has blog posts as well, that would all be fantastic. Um, Absolutely. Well, Sue, thank you so much for doing this phone call with me. Um, Absolutely. Thank you for all your wisdom and information. Um, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. It was so wonderful to have a chance to interview Sue. She's so knowledgeable and I really just respect the work that she does. 
If you live in the Chicago area, definitely go check out chicagofamilypicnic.com. They have resources, classes, wonderful, wonderful community that they're building there. And if you don't live in the Chicago area, I'd still encourage you go look at their blog because it's well-researched and very, very informed. Now, as for our podcast, I would ask you once again, please subscribe to Two Pink Lines Pod. Um, If you could give us a review and a rating, that would definitely be helpful. Help other people access this kind of information. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. 